Good morning, Gateway. Happy Valentine's Day to all of you who have found your Valentines. And I have to just say a quick word because I get the microphone sometimes on Sunday mornings. Valentine's Day is also my wife's birthday. And uh, yes. And for those of you who know Diane, it is an utterly perfect day for her to have her birthday because she is remarkable and awesome. This morning, we're going to begin a series of conversations talking about the rhythm of our lives. I sometimes feel like my schedule runs me instead of me running my schedule. It feels a little bit like a runaway train at times. So if we were to do that differently, uh, what would it look like? If we were to take control of our schedules, how might we do that? Specifically, how might we use our schedules, our schedules in a way that enhanced our connection with God? That's exactly the kind of thing that God prescribed in the Old Testament. He outlined a rhythm for his followers that involved regular sacrifices, it involved seasonal celebrations, and it involved a weekly time of recuperation, which, when taken all together, that schedule itself served to strengthen the relationship of the average God-worshipper with God. So imagine that, a schedule that actually enhances your connection with God. So over the next weeks, we're going to examine that rhythm and see how it speaks to us today. I'm going to ask Julie to read an Old Testament passage for us, and then Brian's going to read a New Testament passage that somewhat relates, and we'll tie the two together in our comments this morning. The Old Testament passage is about the Day of Atonement, and it's taken from the book of Leviticus. And we're going to be talking about that because that's the highlight, that's the high point of the, the sacrificial system. And today we're going to be talking about that kind of weird to us, Old Testament sacrificial system. And then Brian is going to be reading from Romans chapter 3. So Julie, can you read those verses from uh, Leviticus chapter 16, beginning in verse 3, if you're keeping score at home. Okay, Leviticus 16, verses 3 to 22. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Okay, Julie, pause for a second. This is the garment that they would have worn on the Day of Atonement. And this is what Julie was reading about and describing. It would have been used on that extraordinarily special day, partly to mark it off as special. And it would have included undergarments, which you can't really see, that were so extraordinarily, symbolically, ritualistically holy that the high priest would have had to have gone in and bathed himself before he even put the undergarments on. Then an outer garment, then this vestment and the sash, all of it representing aspects of God or, and or the, the 12 tribes of Israel that God had called together to be one. This would have been worn on the Day of Atonement during that extraordinarily special sacrificing day. And I want you to notice, they would have worn 
bells around the bottom of the garment because they were going in, on the Day of Atonement, they were going into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And the Holy of Holies was the place where the utter presence of God dwelt among them. And they wore bells on the bottom of their garments, partly because in case they went into God's presence and they were unclean themselves, they might die. And they also would tie a rope around their ankle when they went in that would be held outside. If by chance on one of the days of atonement, if they no longer heard any bells, they would know that the high priest had perhaps died, so they would drag him out by the rope. Verse 5. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats, for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. Okay, pause a second, Julie. Now, a couple of things to notice here right away. Number one, you can't help but notice just the weirdness for us, just how awkward and bizarre this is, but don't let it escape you just how detailed God is in the prescription of this. We'll talk about that in a moment, and we're, we're going to circle back to this ceremony and, and talk about the actual details of the ceremony in, in just a little bit. Go ahead, Julie, finish up. Okay. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat 
and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Wow. So this was an annual celebration, and this was for the nation of Israel almost like Thanksgiving for us. It was a time when they were supposed to all gather in Jerusalem and do this thing to symbolize their need for forgiveness and the reality that God was offering them forgiveness. Okay, so we kind of see the other end of this, the fulfillment of this, if you would, in the New Testament, and the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. But just to cue that up for us and to exercise ourselves in some spiritual aerobics, let's stand out of reverence for this piece of God's Word. Let's go old school. And Brian is going to read for us Romans chapter 3. And this is an epic passage of Scripture where Paul is making an argument about who Jesus was and what he did. And through this section of Romans, in fact, throughout Romans, off and on, he weaves in, you know, a kind of this mindset of the sacrificial system. So uh, let's read this this morning, Romans 3, beginning with verse 21. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. Brian? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just as the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take this topic this morning and bring it to life for us. Speak to us. Move. We open ourselves to you now, asking you to establish rhythm in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Okay, so let me explain an illustration that we were going to demonstrate this morning. We'll demonstrate it another Sunday, and I'm going to reserve the right to use it more than once here at Gateway, but I was going to ask the worship team this morning to play a worship song at this point, and we were going to have them cover their ears, and I was going to say, play your favorite worship song, go, and they were going to play, and it was going to be a little bit chaotic. And then we were all going to giggle and smile at the worship team's expense, which I always like to do. And then I was going to say, no, no, let's all play maybe that first song, God Only Wise, together. Cover up your ears and go. And we were going to hear, even when they played the same song, just how important it is to be in rhythm. Because it will be sonically out of sync if they're not locked into the same rhythm. So here's the illustration. I want you to think this morning, if you would, and again, we're going to do this again. We're going to do this real in a couple of weeks. But I want you to think this morning about the lack of the same song, being on different songs. I want you to think of that as just being spiritually adrift, being spiritually out of sync with yourself 
and with the universe. And then I want you to think of the lack of rhythm as what our lives can look like, they can feel like and look like to others outside of us when we don't have a rhythm in our lives that enhances our relationship with God. Instead, often, right, the rhythm of our lives serves to cause distance between us and God instead of enhancing our relationship with God. When we first introduced this topic at the very beginning of the year, first Sunday in January, for those of you who are here, we did an introduction to this series, and then we said, hey, we're going to take a break for a few weeks. We're going to come back to it during the season of Lent. And you may remember, we made the observation that even if you don't think your schedule has a rhythm, it does, and the rhythm of your schedule is, I'll guarantee you, for all of us suburban Americans, the rhythm of our schedule is determined by the school calendar, you know, summer break, Christmas break. It's determined by your work week and your work-life rhythm when projects are due. And that is the overwhelming governor for our schedule. That's what sets the rhythm of our lives. Now, some of that is inevitable, but that's not a rhythm that we're in control of. It's not a rhythm that we seize. It's not a rhythm that we offer to God. It's not a rhythm that helps us engage with God. It's not a rhythm that encourages our relationship with God. So remember... God prescribed a rhythm, a schedule, for the First Testament saints that worked in sync with their relationship with God. So today we're going to look at one component of that rhythm, and for those of us modern observers, it is an exceedingly weird component. We're going to examine the sacrificial system. So there are three things that you and I have to know about the sacrificial system to understand it. Number one, the sacrificial system was ever-present and comprehensive in the lives of the Old Testament saints. It was ever-present and comprehensive. This is reflected in part just in the kaleidoscope of different terms related to sacrifice. There were five different words that described sacrifice. There were five different words to describe different kinds of sacrifices. There were words related to different ways that the sacrifice was offered. And there were words that were used only in the sacrifice setting that went with the idea of sacrificing. This is also reflected in all the different kinds of sacrifices that God laid out and that he prescribed for his people. There were thank sacrifices and peace sacrifices and guilt sacrifices and sin sacrifices and wave sacrifices and burnt sacrifices and then there were the regular daily sacrifices. The point is that the sacrifices were a constant and an ever-present reminder and they covered every spiritual condition and contingency. They were ever-present, and they were comprehensive. I want you to think about how significant that is. The ritual of sacrificing and the ideas behind sacrificing were a near-constant feature of Israelite life. I'm going to say that again. The practice of sacrificing, the ritual of sacrificing itself, and the ideas that were promoted every time they offered a sacrifice, that was a constant feature of their lives. It was constantly before them. And God prescribed it to be so. He laid out this system in intricate detail and prescribed it for all sorts of occasions and spiritual conditions. And doesn't that make sense? I mean, every relationship requires investment, regularity, and consistent contact. So today is Valentine's Day, and gentlemen especially, if this is the only day that you say or do anything extraordinary that demonstrates your love, then it's not going to go well for you. Because relationships are nurtured 
constantly and consistently. So God built that into his relationship with his people through the sacrificial system. And he wants the same for us. Regular practices that make sense to us. That brings us to the second point about the sacrificial system. Secondly, through the sacrificial system, God accommodated himself to his people. I know it's weird to us, but through the sacrificial system, God actually accommodated himself to his people. Let me explain. From the beginning of human history, human beings felt the need to offer a sacrifice to something higher than themselves. So God didn't make up the idea of sacrificing. I repeat, this practice wasn't invented through the writings of Exodus and Leviticus. Instead, God accommodated himself to his followers. He took a form of worship that was familiar to them, and he adopted it, he accommodated it in a way that enhanced their connection with him. Again, let me repeat, this was God's gracious attempt to use a familiar ritual and fill that ritual with his meaning. Look, suppose that we this morning decide we're going to start a gang. And we decide that our official color is red. Now clearly, we aren't making up the color red. Nor are we the first to use red in our clothing or our shoe apparel. Instead, we're using something already well-known, but we're using it for our purposes and attaching our meaning to it. The red we wear will literally take on a life of its own through the meaning that we give to it. So we're walking down the street, we're wearing red, we see someone else wear red, and we're connecting with them. And we're connecting with them around our gang ideas and around uh, our gang activity. Similarly, the ritual sacrificial system took on a life of its own through the meaning that God gave to it. We'll talk about the meaning he gave to it in just a moment, but it's interesting to note that while God did accommodate himself, don't miss this, while God did accommodate himself to their understanding by using this familiar form, the form of sacrifices, there was another very important way in which he absolutely would not accommodate himself to the understanding of religious people around them. He did not allow them to use or allow them to create images of him. You see, all the peoples around the Israelites made images of their God. These were images that had eyes and ears and mouths, even though their gods could not see or hear or speak. But the God of Moses was a God so personal that he offered them a name by which they could address him, but he would not let them make images of him. It's as if God was saying, look, I want you to know me, but I want you to remember that I'm altogether different from you. I'm spirit, and I'm holy, so don't make any images of me because I don't want you to get confused about that. However, I do so want to encourage our relationship. Therefore, I'm going to take a ritual that you know and fill it with meaning and then prescribe for you exactly how to use it so that it encourages our connection and our relationship with one another. Through the sacrificial system, God accommodated himself to his people. This business of sacrificing, this wasn't a burden. This was an act of grace on God's behalf. And he wants the same for us today. This is exactly why the first followers of Jesus talked about prayer and about studying and meditating on the writings of the apostles. This is why at Gateway, we talk about practicing creative devotion. And if you've been around Gateway for very long, you've heard us use that phrase. Because this is part of our church covenant. 
that we're going to practice creative devotion. Here's what we say in our covenant, and I want you to say this with me. Let's make sure we're awake. So this is the paragraph after practicing creative devotion. This is the paragraph that we offer to explain that in our church covenant. Let's read together. As followers of Jesus, we delight in God and his presence in our lives. We seek to practice spiritual disciplines daily as a means of participating in life in Christ. These disciplines center on scripture study and prayer. This allows us to welcome God into every part of our lives. We have also committed ourselves to gathering weekly with our whole congregation to offer corporate worship to God. So when I speak with little children, I try to accommodate myself to them. And so do you, I bet. I accommodate myself to their interests and to their vocabulary and to images that they understand. So when I'm talking to the two Salee little children, I don't say, you know, Nathan, how's that project going at work? You know, how are you doing with your laptop? I offer up images and vocabulary and concepts that Nathan and I can relate together about. This enables us to communicate more effectively. I believe God wants to accommodate himself to us in the same way, and he does so by taking our times of prayer and our times of gathering together and talking with one another and our times of reading the Bible and our times of meeting, and he fills those times with life and connection and with a sense of transcendence. That's what God was doing through the sacrificial system. He was accommodating himself to their understanding. Well, we said there's a third thing that we need to know about the sacrificial system. We talked about how God took the familiar practice of sacrificing and filled it with his meaning. So here's what he filled it with. Through the sacrificial system, God symbolically communicated both the need for forgiveness and his offer of forgiveness. Through the sacrificial system, constantly, we said it was an ever-present reminder of the need for forgiveness. So constantly they're reminded, you're a mess, you're not like me. And constantly they're reminded, I love you anyway, and I'm going to draw you in. Listen, in early human history, sacrifices were usually thought of as a means of either pacifying the anger of the gods or of caring for the gods, literally feeding the gods. This is still sometimes the case today. For example, there are sects of Hinduism that believe that they're caring for the gods and that they'll offer up food. Gods in the ancient world were thought of almost like petulant children who needed to be cared for and calmed down. Against this, God gave the the people of Israel a very different blueprint for their ritual sacrifices. I want you to listen to what God says in Psalm 50, verses 7 and following. I'm going to read this quickly, but this is a breathtaking passage of Scripture. Psalm 50, the psalmist is speaking for God, and he says this. Hear my, my people, I'm going to speak, O Israel, and I'm going to testify against you. I'm God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings which are ever before me. But I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that's in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The sacrifice 
Thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Be about your connection to me. And call upon me in the day of trouble. When things get blown out for you, call on me. I will deliver you. And you will honor me. I don't need your sacrifices. You need them. You need to be reminded of the reality of our relationship and how much you need it. Through this system, God was saying to them, in effect, look, you have blown it. You know it. And you know that when you blow it, there needs to be, there needs to be some kind of reckoning. Well, I want you to believe by faith that the sacrifices you bring to me represent that reckoning. They represent the wrong that you have done and your sorrow over that wrong. Now, as you kill those animals and roast those grains, know that this represents my forgiveness. And as you eat the meal that results from it, know that this food represents our connection with one another. Through the sacrificial system, God was reminding his people both of their need for forgiveness and of his offer for forgiveness. Okay, so the high point of the sacrificial system, as we said, came on the Day of Atonement. And I want you to notice that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, dressed in all this garb, brought a bull and two goats. He brought a bull to sacrifice the bull for his own sin. Because every aspect of this day needed to be holified. It needed to be sanctified. It needed to be consecrated, set apart for God, extraordinary, special on this day. So he would sacrifice that bull for his own sin, and then he would ceremonially sprinkle the blood of the bull all over the temple, all over the holy place, and then all inside at significant points in the most holy place. And then there were two goats. And he would cast Lot, and uh uh-oh, shame on you, and one of them would get picked by Lot to be the sacrifice for the sins of the people. And he would sacrifice that goat and do the same thing with its blood that he had done with the bull's blood to sanctify the whole place also on behalf of the people. And he would, in effect, say, these sacrifices are us reckoning. It's the reckoning. We'll talk more about that in a minute. It's making it right between us and you, God. And then to make sure that the whole place and all the people were holy. They would take the second goat and they would make it a scapegoat, which is where we get that term from. They would tie a red ribbon around its neck and then one person would be ceremonially and ritually set aside and they would take that sacred scapegoat with all of its sins, they would bring it up to the altar and the priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat and he would, in effect, ceremonially and symbolically take the sins of the people and lay them on the goat. And then the person who had been appointed would take the goat out into the wilderness, away from Jerusalem, outside of the city, and away from the people, and release the sins into the wilderness. By that signifying, God, over the past year, we've blown it in more ways than we can imagine. And so we're going to be made right. There's going to be a reckoning because there needs to be death. There's going to be a reckoning and we've killed that sacrifice to provide for that reckoning and then we're also getting rid of our sins. We're cleansing us and the the whole area and we're sending our sins out into the wilderness. There is an awesome website I want to commend to you. It's called The Bible Project. And they've done a series of videos that explain some of the big theological themes of the Bible 
they're also in the midst of making a video that explains every book in the Bible. So if you go to this website, the videos are awesome. I'm going to show you one right now. The videos are awesome. They're also looking for support for making those videos. So if you go and you want to give them support, I'm sure they'd be happy. But I want you to see this video about the sacrificial system. It it alludes also to the Day of Atonement, and then it talks about Jesus' part in that. Bear with us. This video is five and a half minutes. But Dean and Tom, can you cue this video up? I think it'll be worthwhile for you. So watch this. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice. But there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead. And we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. (laughs) Therefore, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace, too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant, and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. 
and his life would be offered as a sacrifice. And this is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to his sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in this world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us, so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead, it's the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. How awesome is that? So, this entire system, this elaborate, constant, ever-present reminder this day once a year when this entire giddy-up was used annually to remind them, to celebrate, to drive down in their hearts and minds. It was all an audiovisual aid pointing to Jesus. And what we have in Jesus is the final fulfillment of all of that. Let's mark that right now in our hearts. I've got a few more comments to make, but let's mark that. So stand with us, if you would, and let's sing a song to commemorate that. Savior, I come, quiet my heart. Now, this is a beautiful melody. Most of you are going to be familiar with this. And I want you to lock into this, and I want you to use this, as a, this, this song. I want you to use this as a way to kind of seal this, commemorate this in your heart and in your mind.
Redemption's Hill, where your blood was spilled. talked about the damage done by our evil both it said didn't you like that the direct effect creating injustice and the indirect effect wrecking the environment around us the environment of the relationship and through the sacrifices God was able to illustrate the solution to both of these problems in a sacrifice we give up something say a valuable animal which symbolically represents the repayment. This symbolically addressed the direct effect of the damage of evil. Plus, through the death of the animal, an atonement is symbolically made for the wrecking of the relationship because a life is taken. Now, God told us from the very beginning, if you ever blow it, the universe is designed in such a way that your life will be required. 
You cannot exist in the universe that I have created when you blow it. You will experience death and separation from me. All you have to do is not blow it. If you don't blow it, you can do whatever you want. But if you blow it, reality will be altered and you will die. Well, of course, we blow it. So, we need to experience sorrow and then we need to offer sacrifices by faith that make right the wrong we have created, but this was only symbolic. This whole system was never good enough. The life of a goat doesn't satisfy the penalty for the wreckage and the vandalism which we've done to the relationship. The life that is required is ours. So God needed to either eliminate the wreckage makers, us, or He needed to find a suitable substitute. So now I want to reread those words from Romans chapter 3 that Brian read for us this morning. And once again, let's go old school. Stand with me out of reverence for this. But now, Paul says, now since Jesus has come, since we've seen all of the stuff that was talked about in the Old Testament, now a righteousness from God, a rightness with God, a, a way to be rightly connected to God, a right way of living has come from God apart from the law, apart from obeying every dot and tittle and never blowing it. Apart from that, a righteousness has come. has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Look, there's no difference. I've heard preachers say the ground at the foot of the cross is even. We're all the same. No matter who we are, there's no difference. For all have blown it and fall short of God's expectations of us and the glory of God. We were justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Do you see now how significant it was when Jesus' cousin John saw Jesus coming toward the Jordan River and he said, the Lamb of God. The One that takes away the sin of the world. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because a life had to be taken, a suitable life, because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that all of those saints throughout the First Testament era, they were sacrificing and believing by faith that God was forgiving them of their sins and He was promising that He was doing so, but all of that was looking forward to the time when God's real justice would find its fulfillment in the death of Jesus, His Son. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, now for us. So as to be both just, satisfying the demands of the universe He created, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You may be seated. So accepting Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf justifies us before God and it reestablishes our connection with Him. This is what the first Christians meant by the phrase, the Gospel. That literally means the good news. And if you read that phrase in the New Testament, this is what they meant. 
but now. Now that, we have, now that we have a relationship with God, and I know that many of you in here this morning do, now that we have a relationship with God, like every relationship, it needs to be nurtured. It needs to be supported. And this is where rhythm comes in in our next five weeks together. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was not just a constant reminder of the need for forgiveness and the reality of its availability, but it also became a way to nurture the relationship with God. It was constantly a connecting point. Think back to when, those of you who are parents, think back to when you taught your children to speak. When you were teaching your children to speak, Daddy, Daddy, no, not Mommy, Daddy, you were doing two things with them. Number one, you were teaching them the basics of language. But secondly, you were also engaged in building a relationship with them through the act of teaching at the same time. You were connecting through the act of teaching. So in the sacrifices, God was teaching them the truth about the need for forgiveness, but He was also relating to them and connecting heart to heart. The same is true for us. Through the reading, through the spiritual exercises, like the reading and study of God's Word, and through prayer, through singing, through church attendance, God is teaching us truths about ourselves and about Himself, but He's also literally connecting with us. One more passage of Scripture. You don't need to look this one up. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul is using all of this imagery to present the most amazing, mind-blowing, goosebump-rendering illustration you can imagine. So in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says this, based on everything I've just said, therefore, he's laid out the contents of the gospel, and Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy and all of this that we've just talked about, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So every day, Find some rhythm so that every day you take your time and your talent and your treasure and you lay it on the altar and you say, God, it's your because of all that I have you gave me. Offer yourselves, your bodies as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world. You've got a different rhythm. Be transformed. You live by a completely different pattern. And you do that through the renewing of your mind. And then, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. You want to know what God has for you next? Then offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. Okay, let's wrap up. This Lenten season, let's recalibrate our schedules. All God's people said amen. Wow, that was a sleepy amen. Let's recalibrate our schedules this Lenten season. That's a better. Let me give you three suggestions. You can do more, but let me give you three suggestions. Number one, let's find a way to simplify. I want you to think about the traditional Lenten pattern of giving something up that will allow you to intensify your focus and to simplify your schedule. In some of your cases, you may need to give up one of the travel teams that one of your kids is on. Or you might want to give up social media on the weekends. I heard yesterday that there is almost now, they've realized there's almost now a direct connection between 
the amount of time that you look at Facebook and how much sleep you get. No kidding. They don't know which is the cause or the effect, but there's nearly a direct relationship. The more time you spend on Facebook, the less sleep you get. Maybe uh, you want to give up social media on Saturdays and Sundays or Monday through Sunday. Simplify. Find something that will simplify. It's awesome. It's awesome if you give up chocolate, if chocolate is really an issue for you. That's awesome. That's an awesome exercise. But I'm going to encourage you to, to give up something that will really simplify and allow you to focus. Secondly, I want you to think about today how to boost your devotional practice for the next five or six weeks. We have a Lenten devotion for each morning that will be online on the website. So you can check that out. That will only take you five or ten minutes. And for those of you who are just beginning to learn how to, to practice this on a regular daily basis, that, that would be a great place to start. For others of you, that might just be the beginning of what you do. I want you to think about how to, to boost your... And you'll need a plan to do that. You can't just say, yeah, I want to do better. You need a plan. I want to encourage you to add, listen to this, I want to encourage you to add Bible reading if you don't do this regularly. And try to boost the Bible reading that you're doing if you do this regularly. I know that some of you have a devotional practice and you go online and you get one of those great devotionals for men who work too much or for stay-at-home moms. And those are often great, but I want to encourage you. It's sometimes more work. There's some weirdness in here. But there's also God in this. I want to encourage you to read the Bible as part of your devotional activity during this Lenten season. And I also want to encourage you as you're boosting your devotional activity, for those of you who are either married or if you have kids, I want you to think about adding a family component to your devotional activity during Lent. Think of some way that you can add family component for you. When our kids were little, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but once a week, Diane and I used to have this practice where she had bought the boys those, y'all remember these? I don't, we may have some in the back at Gateway, those cardboard bricks. They, they look like bricks, and you can buy a set of them. And we had a set of those, that, which our boys often would build things or throw things at one another. And so Diane would grab one of those bricks, and she'd bring it down into our den, and Diane was great. She's magic with little kids, and she would be, she'd bring it down. She, it's just a brick. They played with them every day. And she'd set it down in the den. And then she'd go get a candle on a little stand, and she, she'd bring it up, and she'd set it on the brick. And she would say, okay, we're going to light the candle, and we're going to have family devotions. But you've got to be five to light the candle, and Graham would always be became like this magical privilege to light the candle. So Jordan would light the candle, and then we'd sit around and we would do some devotional thing like, God loves you. They'd be like, and then we'd sing a song. And usually, I'd grab my guitar and we'd sing some song while we marched around the house, and then I'd throw them on the couch and do my part and jump on top of them. Find some way to add a family component. We didn't do so well when our kids were in high school. <laughs> so you've got to figure that one out for yourself if you've got older kids. But add a family component during this Lenten season. Third, try the prayer exercise. So we want to hear some tearing at the end of the service today as you tear off the bottom 
of the insert in the program, and you're deciding what day and for how long you're going to try to pray for us, for what God is doing here. If you're visiting today, thanks for coming. Don't worry about that part of it. Figure out your own prayer exercise. Or you can, we'd certainly welcome you praying for us. Let's take a deeper dive. Let's just decide, okay? This next couple months, this is going to be about me and God. I'm going to really try to zero in. I'm going to make this part of the rhythm of my life. We're going to focus in during this season. I already know this is not a great season for some of you, and I apologize for that. Some of you are running up against work projects or taxes. This is a difficult season for you. So I, I just humbly say, you know, I'm sorry, and let's figure that out. But let's really, boy, let's take a deeper dive during this. You've got nothing to do today, right? It's freezing cold. You can't go outside. So let's figure some of this out. When you go out for Valentine's dinner tonight, sit across from one another. And after you've looked moony-eyed at one another, if you've been married for less than 10 years, you know that's going to last five or six minutes. If you've been married more than 15 years, that's going to last like a minute and a half. And then you've got a long time to kind of talk about how you're going to do some of this. Let's pray. Stand with me. So, Father, we now give you permission to wrap this up and apply it to our lives, to dial this in, whatever part of this you need to use to encourage us, to draw us deeper. We pray that you would use it. We give you permission. Lord, I also, especially this morning, pray for any who are here that do not have a connection with you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you've accommodated yourself to us. That you've communicated yourself and your mind-blowing truth in a way that has actually grabbed our hearts. That you have provoked us. I pray today, Lord Jesus, that you would take the gospel and that you would penetrate past our defenses and surprise us and quicken us and awaken us. And for those of us, Lord, who've been dialed into you for a long time, we pray that we dedicate, we set aside, we take a bath this morning, we wrap ourselves in sacred linen, we put the garments over the top and all of the accoutrements, and we say, Lord, this winter, help us to dive in deeper with you, to make our schedule something that enhances our connection with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace.